This idea of meditating upon the law of God day and night means that the totality of your mindset, your worldview, that which captivates you, that which gives you great delight, that which gives you the opportunity to meditate upon the truths of God so that you can become dead to the things of this world. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Pastor Lance Quinn's five-part series, Which Way Are You Going? from Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In this series, Pastor Lance is setting up a contrast from God's Word between the walk of the godly and the walk of the wicked. In part one of our series, Pastor Lance identified things the godly should avoid in their walk with the Lord, who to avoid, what to avoid, and where to avoid in a sinful, fallen world. Doing these things, of course, doesn't save us. Only Christ's redemptive blood and the power of His resurrection can do that. But when we're truly redeemed, we're going to have a different view of the world and its attractions, not just wanting to walk in a godly manner, but willing to walk in a godly manner. Here now is part two of Which Way Are You Going? Look at chapter 13 and what it says after Abram and Lot separated from one another. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. He and his uncle Abram, they were going to be separating and they had a large livestock between the two of them. And so they and their households needed to separate. And Lot chose for himself, according to Genesis 13:11, all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. You know what that's telling us? His walk was near Sodom and Gomorrah. That was his walk. His property, his, the extension of his household was a walk that included that wicked pair of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then look at chapter 14. This is very interesting. Verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was what? Living in Sodom. He didn't just have his livestock and his property near Sodom now. He wasn't just walking around so as to bump up against Sodom and Gomorrah. He was now actually living in Sodom. That implies to me at least that he could have lived elsewhere, but he chose to live in or near or at Sodom. That's a walking and then a standing. And then look at chapter 19. Most interesting is this illustration. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was, what? Sitting in the gate of Sodom. Walking, standing, now sitting. That even might imply, by the way, that he was an official now within the city gate of Sodom because the sitting of the magistrates, the legislators, the key men of the city was when they arbitrated certain rules and ideas and the governance of the city itself, and Lot was apparently among them. Now, I know that somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. I thought you're giving us here in Psalm 1 
an illustration of the ungodly. You know what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2? You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, notice what it says about this person, Lot, by way again of an illustration. And if God, 2 Peter 2.6, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if He rescued righteous Lot, you know that if all we had of the biblical account of Lot was what he did in those accounts in Genesis as you read them from chapters 13 through chapter 19, you would probably be hard-pressed to say, as I would, that Lot was righteous at all. That's all we had. But it actually calls him, here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, righteous Lot. And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, because what? He was not just walking in Sodom and Gomorrah. He was not just standing there, but he'd now come to a settled sitting position, even among the governance of the city. So he was seeing everything that was going on. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented or vexed, day after day by their lawless deeds. Of course, the answer to that is Lot. Get out of there! Get out of there! Didn't Abram, in this account in Genesis, even ask the Lord, Lord, if there are 50 righteous men in that place, don't destroy it. And the Lord said, if there are 50 righteous men, I won't. And how many did it get down to? You know, the only reason the Lord didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah while Lot was there, it was because Lot was there. And he apparently was at least attempting to be a righteous man. But one of his fatal flaws and why his soul was vexed or tormented day after day was because he was seeing all of the godlessness around him. You know what I would say for us by way of application today? If you want to be a godly person, if you are characterized as a godly person, then ask yourself the question, what am I walking around What am I standing and seeing? And what am I sitting in and among so as to have my own righteous soul tormented and vexed by what I see? Run away from it. Get away from it. My friends, if you don't want to fall, don't walk where it's slippery. Don't walk where it's slippery. Don't even put yourself in the the place of having your eyeballs looking upon things for which you should not be viewing. For involvement in those areas and those systems of a godless world for which they are not profiting your soul. Don't automatically or even incidentally be around that which can and will certainly do if it is ungodly, vex and torment your soul. It's not worth it. The godly man, the blessed man, the holy man, the righteous man, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Counsel. Their ideas, their worldview, their advice. Don't walk in that counsel. Don't put one step in front of the other in the very counsel of the wicked. And it's not just wicked in the sense, this Hebrew word, of those who are especially evil. It's the word wicked as those who are characterized simply because they do not believe God. They don't believe in Him. They don't believe upon Him. 
they are not entrusting themselves to Him, and when they come to give you their advice and counsel, don't walk in it. And He says, don't stand in the path. That's the way. That's the road. That's the path of sinners. Sinners, that famous word, to miss the mark. Uh, To do evil and wickedness because you've missed the mark of righteousness. And do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are those who continually attempt to denigrate the person of God, His Word, and all that is sacred and holy. They scoff at the very idea of righteousness and godliness. You get the picture? It's negative. I'll grant you that. But maybe he starts this way because he knows our proclivities to the allurements of this godless world. So, if you're a person who aspires to godliness, who says you're characterized that way, you are dead, my friends, to the things of the world. Secondly, secondly, you are delighted at the things in God's Word. You're dead to the things of this world, you godly person, and you're also delighted, this is the positive, you're delighted at the things in God's Word. Look at verse 2, Psalm 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates how often? Day and night. Is that literal? Is that literal? You mean every single moment of every single day, of both day and night, you have to have your, your eyes opened to the Scripture and read it at every turn? What's it referring to? What, what's it driving toward when it gives these sort of hyperbolic words, meditating on God's Word day and night? It's your mindset. That's right. It's what you think of once you've hidden God's Word in your heart. What does Psalm 119, 9 and 11 say? What does it say? Someone quote it for me. Thy word I've treasured in my heart that I may not what? Sin against you. This idea of meditating upon the law of God day and night means that the totality of your mindset, your worldview, that which captivates you, that which gives you great delight, that which gives you the opportunity to meditate upon the truths of God so that you can become dead to the things of this world. You have to have that. It's the putting off of the dead things of the world and it's putting on the delightfulness of the meditation of the law of God. You are dead to the things of the world and you are delighting in the things of God's Word. That's what you're doing. That's who you are. That's what characterizes you. That's the way of the godly. You want to ask yourself the question, how do I know I'm a Christian? Is it just because I meditate on the law of God? No, but it is this. Because God has regenerated my heart, because He's giving me a new heart. Before, I didn't care about God's Word. I didn't know God's Word. I didn't care about it. I didn't want it. In fact, it was restrictive and narrow. It was always an emphasis, or so it seemed to me, on the things I couldn't do versus the things I could. It seemed a drudgery and a bore. But once God opened my eyes to the truth of His Word and the fact that it was the only way of salvation, that it was the only way to eternal life, it became this Word to me, the joy and the delight of my heart. 
Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15, and I want to show you this. Jeremiah 15. This is the attitude that you must have. This is what characterizes you. This isn't what makes you become a Christian, but this is what characterizes you if you are a Christian. Jeremiah chapter 15. Look at verse 16. This is the contrast from Jeremiah's perspective. You want to see how he does the same thing that the psalmist does in Psalm 1, where he says, here's the characteristics of the godly. Here are the characteristics of the ungodly. Here's the way of the blessed man. Here's the way of the cursed man. Notice what he says, Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words, speaking from Jeremiah, his heart, his mind to God, your words were found and I what? I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You eat God's word. You eat it up. You love it. You treasure it in your heart so that you cannot even come close to saying, I'm okay with sin. I want to treasure it in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And now look at the contrast. Verse 17 of Jeremiah. 15, I did not sit, notice that, isn't that amazing? I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult because of your hand upon me. I sat alone for you filled me with indignation. What kind of indignation? Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? What's he saying? He's looking around at all of, the, all of his countrymen, all of his, his people, and he's looking at all of their godlessness and all of their wickedness, and he's saying, Lord, I don't want to sit among the, the merrymakers. I don't want to make merry when my country's looking like this. That's why he was called the weeping prophet, because he saw all the, the supposed people of God making merry and doing all of this frivolity and all of the partying. When he knew they were headed for hell? No. You are dead to the things of the world and you are delighted in the things of God's Word. You can't get enough. You can't get enough. You soak it in. You think about it. You meditate upon it. That's why it says, my delight is in the law of the Lord. Read Psalm 119 sometime and you find out in 176 verses how that psalmist loves God's Word. And he meditates day and night upon the Word of God. Just, he just cannot get enough. You know, I suppose that for us, it's not necessarily the quantity of how much time you spend in God's Word, but it is the quality of its effect. So I suppose the quality of its effect might be attributable to how much time you spend in it, how much time you spend thinking about it the implications of God's Word. What about my actions? What about my future? What about decision-making? What about sin? What is it? What does it look like? What about righteousness? What is it? What does it look like? I want to meditate on God's Word to the degree, listen to this, to the degree that I'm thinking through things biblically even in my involuntary reflexes. I'm just spewing out Bible principles at each and every course of my life, even if I'm not totally and completely conscious that I'm thinking about Scripture. You know, they used to say about John Bunyan, I think Spurgeon said this, 
that if you cut him open, he would bleed Bibline. He was so full of Bible. It was in him. It was a part of him that even, I'm sure, even in his involuntary actions and reactions to life, he was just tripping over himself thinking about Bible. I had a friend who had a commitment to himself where he said this, no Bible, no breakfast. Thinking about it, meditating on it, chewing on it. You know, that's that idea of the cow chewing its cud. It's, it's this idea that you're ruminating on it. You're thinking about it. It's in you. It's a part of you. Part of your decision making. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of the reflex action, even involuntarily, of your life. You're dead to the things of the world. You're delighted at the things in God's Word. And thirdly, thirdly, Psalm 1-3, you're described as a flourishing tree. You're described as a flourishing tree. You're dead to the things of the world. You're delighted at the things in God's Word. And you're described in a simile like a flourishing tree. I thought maybe as a way for myself and maybe you to remember these three characteristics of the godly man, dead, delighted, and this idea of being described, or maybe something like this, if this is better for you, world, word, and wood. You're like a tree. And what are the characteristics of that tree? Solid, stable. What does it say, verse 3? He will be this godly man, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he what? Prospers. This is amazing. And it harkens right back to Jeremiah. Look at chapter 17. We read Jeremiah chapter 15. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17. It's almost like Jeremiah and this psalmist here were reading their own mail. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 to 8. See if this doesn't sound like Psalm 1. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord. Here's the same very clear, simple contrast. Cursed. That's the godless man. That's the unholy man. That's the unrighteous dude. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. You know how that man is being characterized? He trusts in himself. He makes his own flesh or his own arm his strength. And whose heart does what? Turns away from the Lord. See, that's the cursed man. Because he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own devices. He's trusting in his own resources. His voluntary and involuntary reactions and responses to life are humanly oriented, humanly inspired. They are, in fact, the sum total and the totality of who he is in and of himself and for and toward his own resources. Now, my friends... That is a cul-de-sac of all cul-de-sacs. It's a dead-end street. That's a dry well. His heart turns away from the Lord. And what will he be like? What's the simile here? Verse 6. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes. What about the God, godly man? What about the holy man? And in whatever he does, he what? He prospers. Here's the prosperity of this person. And he will not see when Prosperity comes. Even if it came by, he didn't recognize it. You know, it's like the guy 
who was bemoaning the fact, well, it seems to me when opportunity knocks, I'll probably be out back taking out the trash. Oh, when my ship comes in, they'll probably be having the dock strike. He doesn't even see when prosperity comes. But how will he live? He will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Folks, how dry does that sound? It's arid, it's dry, it's dusty. And that is the life of the cursed man who trusts in himself. He makes his own arm his strength because his heart turns away from the Lord. Now contrast that very simply, verse 7. Blessed is the man, not cursed is the man, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. That's his subjective trust. And here's why he can subjectively do that, because objectively the Lord can be trusted. You see that? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. I can trust in the Lord because the Lord can be trusted. And what will he be like? Verse 8, for he will be like a tree planted by the water. Does that sound like Psalm 1? That extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. I love that. Look, he's not the guy who when prosperity comes knocking, he doesn't see it. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't get it. Here's the guy who's living his life and he lives it in such a way because he's trusting in the Lord because the Lord can be trusted He will not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. How clear can it be? How clear can the choice be? What's the way? Which way are you going? Are you going down the way, the path, the road of the counsel of the wicked? The path of sinners, the seed of scoffers? Because you make your arm your strength? Your own flesh is your ultimate resource. How's that working for you? How's that going? I suspect not too well. And it won't go well. And it won't go well forever. Because you're trusting in yourself. How could anybody in this world and seeing what this world is and seeing where this world is going could have any confidence in their trust in themselves or in their fellow man? Any recent events underscore that? This is what God's word says. Do you want to see this analogy, this simile from another psalmist? Look at Psalm 92. This is a a ringing theme in our Bibles using this simile likened unto a flourishing tree. Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Boy, that's big. That's huge. That's strong. That's mighty. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They will be full of sap and very green. Now, I know you might not want to be called a sap, but you'll want to if you're likened to this kind of godly man. Full of, full of sap and very green. Not dry, not arid, not dusty. You will be a person who will be righteous, it says, verse 12. Righteous, planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing, verse 13, yielding fruit in old age, full of sap and very, very green. This is you. This is who you are. You're a godly person. 
This is what characterizes you. This is not what makes you a Christian. This is what you look like when you are a Christian. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In today's message, Pastor Lance identified three primary characteristics of those who walk in the way of the godly. They are dead to the world, they delight in God's Word, and they're like a flourishing tree. What about you? What changes can you make to strengthen your walk with the Lord as we begin this new year? If you want to learn more about the blessings of walking with God, come visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue in our current series with Part 3 of Which Way Are You Going? For Timeless Truth Today, I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.